Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. This is Primal Potential, and I am your host, Elizabeth Benton. Through education, motivation, and implementation, we will bridge the gap between knowing and doing so we can master fat loss naturally and help you reach your highest potential. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Primal Potential Podcast. I am Elizabeth Benton. Super glad you are here today. Let's settle in and chat about calories. If you count calories, this is going to be a great show for you. And even if you do not count calories, I think this is going to be one you want to really pay attention to because the more we understand the impact of what we eat on our hormones, on our ability to burn fat, the better off we are. And I just kind of want this to be a casual conversation like you and I are just sitting at the table over a cup of coffee and I'm giving you my two cents on why I don't count calories and why I don't think you should either. I know a lot of you do because many of you email me about it and you usually preface a question with, I'm eating X number of calories per day or I'm shooting for X many calories per day. And I usually respond by saying, go check out episode 62 of the Primal Potential podcast, which is why uh, it's on uh, four reasons that calorie counting doesn't work. And then I say, we might agree to disagree. You do what works for you. But I don't really answer questions on the basis of how many calories should I eat because I think that it is a very flawed and inaccurate approach. But Episode 62 was a long time ago, so I want to revisit this conversation. And obviously, I understand why people count calories. First, they've been told that's the way. If we just eat a little bit less and we move a little bit more and we are in a calorie deficit, we will lose weight. It's just not that simple. That's not how the body works, right? Plus, Counting calories is a fairly easy thing to track. It is objective. It is black and white, and it's accessible and available information. That doesn't make it effective. As Mark Sisson says, and if you don't know who Mark Sisson is, he is one of the thought leaders in the health and sort of primal natural foods uh, space. He's really a, a brilliant man and about the calorie movement or this idea that all we have to do is eat less and move more, he calls it overly simple and dangerously inaccurate. And I agree, but a lot of people do it because it's easy doesn't make it right. And if it really worked, why do so few people have success with it? Honestly, before we get into the science and stuff, you guys know that I kind of take a common sense approach. Just because something is commonly talked about and easy to track, if it's not getting you the results that you want, why are you doing it no matter what it is, right? No matter what the strategy is, if you are not getting the result that you want with it, why are you doing it, right? So 
I hope you'll have an open mind as we have this conversation today. Ultimately, you can do whatever you want and believe whatever you want, but I'm just going to share my thoughts with you today. Let's start by defining what a calorie is. In general, my experience is that we throw around these words that are just used so often, but we don't really know what they mean. And I have always been a very curious person. If I'm reading a book and I come across a word that I don't know the definition of, a lot of people will kind of just use the context and they can sort of figure it out. But I stop what I'm doing and I look it up. And I I think we should take that approach when we are not every word related to health, but dude, calories is something people talk about all the time. You need to understand what it is. And when you understand what it is, all of a sudden, why it's not an accurate thing to measure when your goal is fat loss makes a lot more sense. So a calorie is a unit of measurement, just like an inch or a mile or a degree. All of those things are also units of measurement. And what we're measuring when we talk about calories is the energy potential, the energy potential. So technically speaking, one calorie measures the amount of energy that is required to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. Okay. So when we are looking at water, and we want to make it hotter, we want to raise the temperature, we're measuring in calories how much energy is required to do so, all right? Different foods generate different amounts of heat based on the energy contained with them. You want to know when that matters the most, the energy potential within a food? When you're burning your food to keep you warm, And I don't mean burning it in your body. I mean, when you bring a trailer of food to a bonfire and it's your only source of heat, that's when you kind of want to know like the energy potential in the food. But our bodies don't work like that. So, for example, if we were going to burn some food, say 100 calories from cookies and 100 calories of ground beef, because they are the same amount of calories, that means they contain, when burned in a closed chamber, the same amount of energy, right? They're going to generate the same amount of energy. 100 calories is 100 calories, whether it is cookies or beef or Twinkies or whatever else. The calories being the same means that the energy potential is the same. But I think we can all understand that they don't act the same way in the body. A hundred calories from Twinkies is not going to act the same way as 100 calories from ground beef because our bodies are not closed chambers. We're not just incinerating our food and operating from the energy released. That's not how the body works. Yes, that's how a laboratory setup works, but we are living, breathing humans. We are not a closed chamber in a laboratory. Can we all at least agree on that? So what we need to consider and what the calorie model does not consider is the impact of the fuel type we consume on our bodies. Because we are not robots who swallow a certain amount of calories and poof, All the energy is extracted and our body has all that energy to use. No, different types of food 
impact our digestion differently, our metabolism. We can absorb them in different ways based on where that fuel comes from. And they impact our hormones differently. So it's really important that we understand that we are not a lab rat. We are not a closed chamber in a, in a research lab somewhere. We have this tendency as humans to take one piece of true information, that calories measure the energy potential within food, and then add all sorts of wrong or oversimplified things to it to suit our purposes. But it's not really suiting our purposes, right? Calorie burning in our bodies is not the same thing as burning calories in a laboratory, right? There is way more to food than the energy it contains in a lab setting. And calories tell us the energy it contains in a lab setting. Great for a lab setting, not so great for the human body or fat loss or health, right? This is why so many people fail when they're counting calories. One of the big things, and there's tons of them, but one of the big things that the calorie model omits is the impact of different types of fuel, food, on hunger, right? On cravings. And when many people fail when they're counting calories, it's because they're really hungry or their cravings are out of control. And so they throw the calorie count out the window because they're not in control of how their bodies feel. There is no argument that the type of food we eat and when we eat it can make us more hungry or less hungry. The type of food we eat and when we eat it can give us more cravings or fewer cravings, can sustain our energy or deplete it, improve our mood or crush it, even if the calories are the same. 500 calories from ice cream is going to impact hunger, mood, cravings, and energy so much differently than 500 calories from beef or chicken or vegetables. That is a fact that the calorie model totally overlooks. And don't get me wrong, I, 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 I believed in the calorie model for a very, very long time. And so I would go on a bender of sugar-free jello and 100-calorie snack packs because I could like back a truck up and eat a ton of them and still not be near my my calorie limit for the day or fat-free microwave popcorn which doesn't even remotely resemble anything like food. Heck, none of those three things I just mentioned do. And I was hungry all the time and I had very little energy or vitality. It was an easy thing to measure, and it allowed me to justify eating things that in no way, shape, or form reflect sustaining good health, sustaining hormonal balance, right? So there's a lot that the calorie model misses, and we're going to focus on a lot of it today. It's just not an accurate measure of how food acts in the body. If the calorie model were true, right, that calorie is a calorie and we just have to eat fewer calories than we burn and avoid eating more calories than we burn. If that were true, here's what we would see, right? If we were to determine what your daily calorie burn is, and we say, here, now, since we know how much you burn, just eat this many calories and you'll maintain your weight, regardless of where those calories come from. If that were true, 
then as long as you ate that many calories, whether it came from fried chicken or candy or butter or broccoli, you'd maintain your weight, right? But that is not what we see. That is not what happens. So it doesn't work. It, it is true in a lab setting about what calories are, but again, our bodies are not laboratories, okay? There's a study that looked at two groups of people, and the two groups of people consumed the same amount of calories, but from different sources. So one group can uh, consume the calories from candy, primarily carbohydrate. The other group, same exact amount of calories, but the calories were coming from peanuts. So a combination of carbohydrate and fat and protein. Now, since they were consuming the exact same number of calories and their activity were controlled, you would assume that their body weight would have the same impact. Like if one group gained weight doing that, then the other would because all the other various variables were controlled for. But that's not what happened. In the group containing or consuming candy, their body weight went up, their waist circumference went up, and their LDL, or what we typically an oversimplified way refer to as like the bad cholesterol, went up in the candy group, right? So more body weight, more body fat, uh, impaired metabolic markers. But in the peanut group, they did not see the weight gain or the increase in waist circumference or the changes in cholesterol profile. But what they did see was that the metabolic rate increased. So that they were eating the same thing, totally different responses. And by the same thing, I'm saying the same number of calories, but from different sources. So that in and of itself reminds us calories are not the same just because they're the same unit of measurement. And of course, it goes without saying that the calorie model ignores health. Hello, we're in such a desperate pursuit of fat loss that not only do we choose a model that doesn't reflect what is required for fat loss, but it totally ignores health. I know from a common sense perspective, we all understand that you would be healthier eating 1,500 calories coming from whole foods than eating 1,500 calories from candy and fast food, right? Doesn't health matter in this equation? So calorie counting isn't accurate for fat loss and it doesn't set us up for our best health. There's an example that I shared way back in episode 62 that comes from um, Dr. Mark Hyman. It's absolutely worth revisiting to kind of put concrete examples to this flawed calorie model, all right? Fuel type, meaning what we eat, independent of calories, even when equal in calories, like the candy and the peanuts, the type of fuel determines the metabolic pathway. And calories don't tell us anything about the metabolic pathway and The metabolic pathway is part of how we determine how likely the calories we consume are to be stored as fat or not. That's kind of important if we're doing this whole calorie counting thing as a way of controlling our weight, right? The metabolic pathway that food takes determines how much of what we consumed is used up in the process of just digestion, and therefore how much of it is left over to be stored. 
And it also determines how likely, the metabolic pathway determines how likely what we consumed is to be converted to and or stored as body fat. Again, kind of important. Way back, probably around the same time, I did an episode on high fructose corn syrup. And I talked about how when we consume foods that contain glucose, regular sugar, every single cell in the body, brain cells, muscle cells, etc., can use glucose. But when we consume fructose, even when the calories are exactly the same, fructose takes a different metabolic pathway. So if we're just saying, oh, yeah, it was 200 calories of XYZ, if it comes from, if that 200 calories comes from glucose, that glucose can be used as energy by every single cell in the body. But the same is not true of fructose, right, which is very, which is a common sweetener in non-processed foods. Fructose can only be metabolized by the liver. So we know for sure that 10 calories of glucose is not the same thing as 10 calories from fructose. So this example that I just mentioned from from Dr. Mark Hyman, he compares calories from soda to calories from broccoli, all right? So I think we all kind of understand soda and broccoli aren't the same thing, but if we're looking at the calorie model and you have 200 calories left for the day and you decide, well, I could have a Coke or I could have some broccoli. If the calories are the same, a lot of people will be like, hey, I stayed within my calorie limit. Hooray, hooray. No, it acts so differently in the body. And while this example uses broccoli and soda, you could use this, you could use this same logic to prove a point about almonds versus ice cream or anything. It really is proving a point about the difference in the metabolic pathway determined by where the calories come from, not the calorie count itself. All right, so we're going to use the number 750 because that's what he uses in his example, and I'm borrowing this from him, so no need to reinvent the wheel. It's true, no matter who says it. So when we talk about 750 calories from soda, that sounds like a lot, but it's just a big gulp from 7-Eleven, which I see lots of people consuming. And it's not, don't even be like, well, I would never have that. Hear the point, okay? Don't get lost in the details. 750 calories from soda is a big gulp from 7-Eleven. And for those of you that are like, I would never do that. I bet you might have three 20-ounce bottles of soda or equivalent sugary drink in a day, right? People could easily do that. So 750 calories from that is basically pure sugar, 186 grams of sugar, 46 teaspoons, 46 teaspoons, crazy. So this sugar is very, very simple, right? 750 calories, but the framework, the makeup of those calories is this simple sugar that is very, very quickly absorbed by the gut, right? And we're talking about a blend in this case of fructose and glucose. The glucose spikes your blood sugar and triggers a significant release of insulin, which we've done tons of episodes on insulin. Just search insulin over on primalpotential.com if you want a little bit of a primer on that. So spikes your blood sugar, triggers a significant release of insulin in order to usher that sugar out of the blood, right? Of course, the insulin can only deal with the glucose. The fructose, as I just mentioned, must be handled exclusively by your liver, okay? Now, 750 calories from any other source 
is probably going to have a different insulin response than 750 calories from not only sugar, but sugar in liquid form. All depends on where the calories come from. But in this case, we're seeing this surge of insulin, which we know increases fat storage, especially in the abdominal region. Not only that, surges of insulin increase inflammation, increase stress hormones, and trigger cravings. When we have this surge of blood sugar, even if you know, the calories are the same number of calories as we would have had from broccoli because the composition is different. When we have this sugar hit, the pleasure center in your brain is triggered and it makes you want more. Yep, you'll see a little bit of an energy bump, but it's going to come crashing down because the sugar does not stabilize your blood sugar, only makes it more volatile, which is going to have a negative impact on your mood and your energy and your cravings. But I don't want to leave that. I said the fructose has to be handled by the liver, and I want to get back to that because the fructose can only be metabolized by your liver. It can't be used by your muscles, by your brain. It can only be stored in the liver or or converted to and stored as fat, which fructose is more readily converted to and stored as fat than any other carbohydrate. And like I said, we already did an episode on high fructose corn syrup. So if you're curious about that, go back and listen to that. But I want to say it again. We can't act as if all calories are the same because fructose is more readily converted to and stored as fat than any other carbohydrate. Okay? Plus, it doesn't, in the same way as glucose does, it doesn't trigger feedback to the brain to signal satiety or feelings of fullness. So fructose is not going to fill you up in the same way that other sugar forms might, or certainly in the same way that fat or protein might. And so we're likely to keep eating because your brain isn't getting the message that you're full. Now, To make a crappy calorie situation even worse, this soda doesn't have any fiber, no vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, and those things, the vitamins, the minerals, all of that is required to help you metabolize efficiently the calories that you're consuming. So when we look at whole foods, they naturally contain cofactors that aid in the metabolic process. These processed foods don't, right? Here's the thing we often forget. Metabolism, the process of breaking down the food we eat and using it for energy, it has requirements, right? In order to metabolize what we eat and drink, the body needs a little bit of help. And that help comes from vitamins and minerals that help support the metabolic processes. So when we consume calories from nutrient void sources like soda, processed foods, candy, etc., we're drawing on our nutrient reserves in our body to process empty calories, right? Because it's calorie rich but nutrient poor. And this is what leads to a state where we are overfed but undernourished. And this isn't just a problem if we're trying to lose weight. This is a problem for health and longevity and energy and mood and focus all of those things that are kind of really important. All right, so let's look at the second example. 750 calories from broccoli. 
The calorie model would tell us, like, so long as we stay within the calorie limit, cool. Not so much, right? Now, the very cool thing about this example of soda versus broccoli, they're both carbohydrates, right? So this is where the macro discussion comes in. And I don't mean macro as in like global overarching. I mean people who count macros. I have X many grams of carbohydrate I can have. It has the same flaws as this calorie model because when we look at soda and broccoli, they're both carbohydrates. They're both carbohydrates, right? So it's not like we're comparing 750 calories from beef to 750 calories from white bread, right? We are looking at 750 calories from two different carbohydrate sources. Yes, broccoli is a carbohydrate. Vegetables, with a few exceptions, are carbohydrates. Drives me bananas when companies like Weight Watchers classify certain foods as free. Um, no. If it contains energy, measured in calories, it's not freaking free. You can't overeat anything, whether it's carrots or Twinkies or anything in between. So I love this example because we're looking at vastly different responses to calories in the same amount coming from the same macronutrient, carbohydrates. But anyway, broccoli, onto broccoli. Compared to soda, broccoli as a carbohydrate has more water, has more fiber, and has less sugar. Both are carbohydrates, but very, very, very different carbohydrates. So because the broccoli has more water, more fiber, and less sugar, it is digested much more slowly. Because it is digested much more slowly due to the water and the fiber and less sugar, even though it is a carbohydrate, it has a far less significant impact on blood sugar and insulin. So even though it's a carb, it doesn't, even in the same number of calories, impact blood sugar in the same way. When we look at 750 calories from broccoli, that would be 21 cups. And in that 21 cups of broccoli, there would be 67 grams of fiber. Imagine sitting down with the choice of either drinking three 20-ounce bottles of pop or 21 cups of broccoli. You would be there all day long with the broccoli. But it would be really easy to sip down three 20-ounce bottles of soda, right? I mean, just saying, just saying. The sugar in 21 cups of broccoli is only about 1.5 teaspoons. So you can see why, even though we're talking about the same number of calories as the soda, 750, and both are carbohydrates, obviously it has a very, very different metabolic pathway, a very different impact on blood sugar, and a very different impact on insulin, okay? You're so much fiber in all of this broccoli that very few of the calories actually get absorbed. And those that do get absorbed, get absorbed very, very slowly without the blood sugar or insulin spike, without taxing the liver like the soda did. Remember that because the soda has so much fructose and that fructose can only be processed by the liver and the, the fructose is the most readily converted to fat form of carbohydrate, we don't see this with the broccoli, right? Not only that, because there is less of an impact on blood sugar and the absence of fructose, you do get those signals to your brain with the 750 calories from broccoli that you are full 
And I know you know that two or three cups into the broccoli, you would be getting those signals loud and clear, never mind 21 cups in, right? Also, the broccoli would not trigger the pleasure center in your brain, which is why I know many of you are like, oh God, 21 cups of broccoli, because that is not, that is is really triggered more by the sugar, which isn't present in the same way in the broccoli. And so you're going to experience fewer cravings with the broccoli. All right. This is a fact. Calorie for calorie, they don't act the same way depending on the source. 100 calories of protein is going to keep you fuller for longer than 100 calories from carbohydrate, right? If you think about 100 calories from a cookie, which is like maybe a half a cookie maybe, versus 100 calories from grilled chicken, one is going to satisfy you for far longer, even though the calorie count is the same, right? We can't lose sight of this. The other thing that is so important and overlooked by the calorie model is that whole foods take more energy to break down and process and digest than processed foods do. Okay, so what that means is our bodies have to work harder and burn more energy when breaking down processed foods than, uh, or I'm sorry, when breaking down whole foods than processed foods. So if we look at a meal that's either 500 calories from whole foods or 500 calories from processed foods, you are going to use up or burn more of a higher percentage of the whole foods meal in the just the digestive process than you are in the processed food. And why that matters is whatever is left over after you have digested it, after your body has met its immediate fuel needs, is what gets stored. So with the processed food, even when the calories are the same, there's more left over to be stored because think of processed as pre-digested, right? It's simpler, it's more refined, your body doesn't have to work as hard to break it down. So if you think of it as like a chain reaction and you consume the food, let's say a 500 calorie meal from whole foods versus a 500 calorie meal from processed foods, the processed food's going to get through your system more quickly than the whole foods. And at the end of that little chain reaction, whatever's left that your body doesn't need right now gets stored. And with whole foods, there is less there. The other thing to keep in mind is when we're, when we're looking at the fuel source, certain types of foods, even within the whole food construct, take more energy to digest than others. So protein will require more energy to digest than carbohydrate. So even within the whole food model, calories aren't calories. Like you can't say, oh, well, as long as I make good quality choices, I can count calories. No, because protein takes a different amount of energy to digest than carbohydrate. And protein has a different hormonal impact than carbohydrate. Remember, I said that metabolic pathway matters so much and different types of foods from whole foods or processed food sources take different metabolic pathways. The calorie model leaves this out. What we're talking about here when we talk about the amount of energy it takes to digest, it's something called the thermic effect of food, the thermic effect of food. 
It basically accounts for how much work the body has to do in digesting, absorbing, and metabolizing whatever it is that you've just eaten, right? How much of that energy that you just consumed from food as measured in calories, the body has to work to extract and deliver it to the body, right? The more highly processed, the less your body has to work to metabolize it, right? Does that make sense? So in the example above, when we're looking at the same amount of calories from the same macronutrient, broccoli, soda, the body has to work way harder to digest and metabolize and absorb the broccoli than it does the soda, right? The soda is simple sugar. It's metabolized very quickly, very easily, hits the body with the full load of calories or energy, very, very low thermic effect, whereas the broccoli has a much higher thermic effect. Okay, so when we look at different types of food, and now we're kind of going back to the whole food thing, and this is part of how we're proving that calories are not created equal, the thermic effect of protein is about 25 to 30%. So what that means is if you consume 100 calories from protein, 25 to 30 of those calories are used up in the digestive and metabolic process, okay? Does that make sense? Now, when we look at other macronutrients, they have a very different thermic effect. The thermic effect of carbohydrates is only about 6 to 8%. So again, you consume 100 calories of protein, 25 to 30 roughly of those calories are used up during the digestive process. But the thermic effect of carbohydrates being only 6 to 8%, that means that roughly only about 6 to 8 calories of the 100 is used up in the metabolic process. That's a really, really, really big difference that the calorie model does not account for, okay? So the hormonal environment is something else that is a huge, huge part of this. I talked about how the soda would really trigger this significant impact on insulin. Insulin is a hormone, and it is our hormonal environment that either allows or disallows fat burning, independent of calories, right? You can be in a calorie deficit mainlining sugar, and it's going to have an impact on insulin that prevents fat burning, right? Our hormonal environment is in large part dictated by what we eat, how much we eat when we eat it. And even when calories are exactly equal, the source of what we eat, what we're choosing, has a vastly different impact on our hormonal balance and therefore whether fat burning is allowed or disallowed. In the broccoli and soda example, this soda has a massive impact on insulin, which can keep us out of fat burning mode and keep us in storage mode. It can also mute our satiety signals because of the hormone leptin, right? This exaggerated blood sugar response created by the soda impairs leptin signaling. And so we don't feel full, right? Plus, it's, it's not going to suppress ghrelin. So the hormonal impact of the soda doesn't impact ghrelin in a way that suppresses hunger. It doesn't say, hey, body, you've just consumed 750 calories. You're good. No, that ghrelin response doesn't really happen, but it does with the broccoli. Ghrelin is our hunger hormone. And the sugar in the soda is not 
triggering that, hey, you've just had 750 calories. You're good. Stop eating. You're full. The broccoli, though, does. And that's how all of us can imagine. Yeah, if you had that much broccoli, you for sure would feel full. That is a hormonal signal, right? That is a hormonal signal that is different, even though calories are the same, based on the hormonal impact of the food. Same macro, carbs, same number of cows, 750, vastly different hormonal response. And it doesn't just stop there, right? Because the fat storage is triggered by the soda, we are increasing estrogen production and storage, right? We are increasing stress hormones like cortisol, and the increase in the stress hormones impacts our adrenals and our thyroid. There is a domino effect. And we see the opposite with broccoli. It helps metabolize estrogen. So it has a positive impact on estrogen. It has a positive impact on our stress hormones and therefore doesn't aggravate our adrenal and our thyroids, right? Same calories, same macro, very different hormonal reactions. One favors fat loss, health, nutrient delivery, energy, mood stability, hormone balance. The other triggers the total opposite. The last point I want to make, and I know this is going to irritate many of you, calorie counts are wildly inaccurate. Now, I'm going to refer to a stat in the United States, but this is a global issue. In the United States, a company can underreport calories by 20% and still pass inspection by the FDA. Let me say that again. You can go in for an FDA inspection, or the FDA goes into you for an inspection, and find that you are under-reporting your calories by 20% and still pass inspection. It's not just that it happens, it's that it's common, all right? Think about that for a second. Even if 50%, only 50, only half of the stuff that you're eating when you count calories is under-reported by 20%, and the fact is, it's probably more than 50%, and it's probably uh, more than 20% under, okay? Let's say, let's just be generous, though, and say that only half of the stuff you're consuming is under-reporting by only 20%, and I think that's a generous example. Let's say you're shooting for 1,800 calories a day then you would be, unbeknownst to you, consuming an extra 1,260 calories per week because of the faulty data. And with 3,500 calories being roughly a pound, if that was what was required for you to maintain your weight, you would gain a pound every three weeks, actually every 2.7 weeks. So you got to keep that in mind too. Now, let me say this. Could I personally, me, Elizabeth Benton, count calories or macros and be successful? Yeah, because I would take what I'm doing now, right? Like I know what I eat now for results and I would back calculate it and then try to hit those numbers. Okay. But when we just go to some online calculator and say, oh, well, here's my weight and I'm kind of this active and then give me this and we just hit the number independent of quality. Nah, no, 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 no. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Even if I wanted to say, this is what works for me now, let me back calculate the numbers because I like to count things. I know a lot of people like that structure. I don't move the same way every day. I don't sleep the same way every day. My stress levels aren't the same every day. My hormonal state isn't the same every day. My hunger isn't the same every day. So I think we set ourselves up for failure when we expect to eat the same way, when we expect our appetite and satiety to be the same way every day. It's not. It's not. And that's why people are like, yesterday I did so well. Today I just want to eat everything. And so you do. But 
on days where you're not as hungry, you're still hitting those calories because you can. It's just a flawed model. Let's not be committed to something that doesn't work. So what are we to do? First and foremost, focus on quality. Eat more whole foods, eat fewer processed foods. Second, pay attention to your hunger. Don't eat when you're not hungry. Don't overeat when you are. Pay attention to your body. Track what satisfies you and what doesn't. Stop eating protein bars if they don't touch your hunger and every time you have one, you want three. It doesn't work for you. Stop doing that, right? Pay attention to your body. Are you getting the results you want? And I don't mean the weight on the scale. Take pictures. Look at how your clothes fit. Pay attention. Instead of evaluating food based on, does this fall into somebody else's definition of what healthy is? Ask, does it work for me? Am I getting results? Does it represent an improvement for me? So I'm not trying to bash on anybody who has counted calories. I'm just trying to explain why it is overly simplified to the point of extreme inaccuracy. I love you guys. I hope you are having a wonderful day. Just want to remind you, if you enjoy this show, it really you would really make a big difference to me and to Primal Potential if you would take 60 seconds to leave a rating and review in iTunes. I will link in the show notes over on primalpotential.com to how you can do that. And thank you in advance because honestly, your 60 seconds to do that really makes a big difference for Primal Potential and our ability to keep our message out there. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Primal Potential Podcast, where my goal is not to inform you, but to transform you. And if you would like to receive free motivation and strategy and recipes, workouts, meal ideas every week right to your inbox, just text the word PRIMAL to the number 44222 or go to primalpotential.com slash join. It's a great way to get the tools, the strategies, and the practical implementation assistance that you need to create your own transformation between podcast episodes. Just text the word PRIMAL to the number 44222 or go to primalpotential.com slash join. See you there.